This is Daniel Figella, and you're listening to the AI and Business Podcast. This is the first of a five-part Thursday series on AI futures. And in this series, we're focused on generative AI and human reward systems. Many of us are aware that our reward systems are already pretty well hijacked by different kinds of digital media, whether it's scrolling YouTube or TikTok or online gaming or something else. While more immersive AI generative experiences have tremendous potential for educational value and new modes of creativity, we also believe that there's a serious risk that these technologies will have an addictive appeal and pull people away from productive work and maybe even away from collaborating with each other. We are honored to have as our guest in the first episode of this series, Lambert Hogenhout, who is the Chief of Data Analytics and Emerging Technologies for the United Nations. He's been with that organization for some two decades and has some far-reaching perspective on where technology's momentum is taking us. And he goes right into brain-computer interface and the, the real farther future of the human experience. The purpose of these AI Future Series is to stretch our imagination into where is this technology taking us and where do we really want to go? And Lambert does a great job of talking about where is tech momentum leading and also how can we prevent a potentially arms race oriented dynamic around AI and brain computer interface. Obviously, as the premier intergovernmental organization, he would have some strong ideas there as well. So I really do appreciate some of Lambert's takes. Again, this is the first of a five part series airing every Thursday. So in the outro of this episode, I will be talking a little bit more about some of the other guests you're going to hear from. And I would encourage all of you, if you want to see some of Lambert's quotes in context with some of our broader research on generative AI, including our interviews with OpenAI, Microsoft, and others, go to emerge.com slash reward. This is our big quarterly article about generative AI and reward systems, and we'd love your thoughts and ideas on it because it's going to help us mold some of our future editorial coverage. Again, that's emerj.com slash reward. You can see some of Lambert's quotes and see our broader research on this topic. Without further ado, this is Lambert with the United Nations here on the AI and Business Podcast. So Lambert, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Dan. Yes, it's great to be able to have you here. I know that you've got some far-thinking ideas about where we're headed with emerging technology. We have this focus in this series on the future of kind of VR, AI, and, and frankly, the future of the human experience. And when people think about where this technology is taking us, it feels like it has a bit of a momentum. And many thinkers have some ideas around where we're going to land five years, 10 years out. What are we kind of turning into? What's day-to-day -day human life turning into? What are some of those big picture future visions that maybe to some people might be scary, but you feel like are quite realistic in terms of where we're headed? Sure, yeah. Obviously, things are developing very, very rapidly right now and, and and i think if we talk about a five-year time frame or even more than that it's probably going to be things that we can barely imagine right now yeah you know what we what is already quite obvious to us is that there is this concept of virtual reality and augmented reality where we can either add elements to our, our existing world or we can create virtual worlds and i think especially with these generative ai frameworks right now it's it's going to become so easy to generate right now we can generate images and uh, 3d objects soon that's going to be 3d worlds and interactive 3d worlds you can interact with these these objects or entire entire movies that in vr that you can create and they can be customized personalized which is all very nice you can 
you know, creates your own world just like like you want it. So, you know, I, I think all of these things are are nice. I'm not sure that it is sort of the long-term future that I see. I think ultimately when you think about concepts being generated as images, let's say I want an image of a blue dog on the top of the Himalaya and then my, my eyes have to interpret that and my brain has to interpret that. I think when you talk about a five-year or even 10-year time frame, we're going to be able to tap into brains directly and the, the generative AI will need to tap into that as well. So, you know, the concept of generating an image of a blue dog on the top of the Himalaya becomes useless. What you want is to be able to tap into brain signals. Yeah, I think this by itself probably for many people will be surprising, even for me to hear about anything viable in terms of BCI in a five-year time horizon, you know, having followed the brain gates of the world for the last nine years with our first interview with them. It's been a clunky space, but but I do think there's a lot of promise. Clearly, AI is developing incredibly rapidly. And now we have we have Neuralink, which we didn't have nine years ago. We have Kernel, we didn't have nine years ago. But you do see potentially BCI being viable for, for people, you know, within maybe that, that decade span. Am I hearing you correctly? Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the first applications that those companies are looking at is obviously people with disabilities, uh, people yes. with ALS, or with, with the cerebral palsy, people who cannot, cannot communicate, who are locked in, frozen in, you know, for them, it is, is an obvious advantage whether it goes mainstream and, and how we will be using that. Is it something that we use for entertainment? You know, just like I turn on a Netflix movie right now, maybe 10 years from now, I'll just have some pleasant ideas fed into my brain and I can relax that way. Or does it go beyond that? And, and you know, those can be sort of scary ideas. Well, nothing wrong with scary. I think. Frankly, Lambert, if your grandparents were told how many hours you would spend in front of screens and the things you would do in a day-to-day life when they were 20 years old and you were not even close to being born yet, they would probably consider you to be some kind of monster or god. How odd and outlandish your day-to-day life is compared to whatever they were doing. You know, mine might have been growing radishes, for example. We would be living hellish lives in their minds. But as it turns out, you and I live in what doesn't quite feel like a hell. I mean, it feels pretty open-ended. So who knows where those futures will take us? Could be scary, could be good. I'd love to dive into some of those. And you're, you're touching on something really important, which is that in your mind, now I certainly see it as inevitable, although I don't know the time frames, but I, I'm concurring with you. BCI is inevitable. VR is because we want some kind of stimuli. We want access to information. If there's even faster ways to get it, we're going to have faster ways to get it. I didn't fly to New York to have this interview with you. We're doing a faster way. And if there was an even faster way, I'm sure you and I would figure it out and, and we would get it done. That said, you know, you mentioned work applications. You mentioned relaxing. What do you see transmuting into the BCI world, do you see sort of essentially the whole gamut of our productive and our renewing activities shifting in there almost simultaneously? Do you see it more being one or the other? What are the kinds of activities that this technology might really be full of? Well, I think the the good aspect of this is that it, it can all be personalized. So I can create this this environment, this sensation for myself, be it a you know virtual reality right now or be it brain impulses at some point but that's my world 
And I think for society to function, we need to have some commonalities. You know, we need to be able to communicate with each other and we need to agree on some things. If if I say this is a table and you have no idea what I'm talking about, communication becomes really, really difficult. So everybody having their own experiences in the world is is great to some extent. It can be much more fun than than having to put up with all the, the things every day that I encounter that yes. I don't like, you know. <laughs> but you know, how do we interact then? And you know, I think that that idea of increasing personalization, it it comes back and I'm already encountering it in life life today. When we look, for instance, at peace mediation at the UN, conflict resolution, those are the kind of things that we do. If you want to resolve a conflict, what you need to do, the techniques to do that is to to go down to some common ground, some things that you and I both agree on before we get to the level where we're totally, you know, disagreeing on, on, on everything. If And the more you personalize your entire world around you, the less common ground we have. I could not possibly agree more with you. I think that this idea of the atomization of experience, in my opinion, and I'd love for you to disagree with me harshly if you do, I actually think all we really want is to fulfill drives. You've got a bunch of them, I have a bunch of them. Our lives are ambulating between them. There's eating, there's romance, there's curiosity, there's relaxation, there's alleviating physical pain, there's whatever kind of thrill, et cetera, et cetera. All of it was wired back, most of it all the way through like rodentia to do whatever. But but it's it's complicated, but but that's kind of what we're doing. What we really want is not a walk in the woods. We want to feel relaxed. We want whatever's going to get us that emotional state. We might even argue, do we want to build a business and be financially independent, or do we want to feel like people are proud of us? Do we want to feel some kind of a change in emotional state? If you have an experience machine that can just get you that emotional state, almost why do anything at all? And I think that this pulls us into the atomization of experience that that might make things unproductive, not only in conflict resolution, but in the productivity and strength of a society. Do you see those as viable threats, that reward system idea, number one? Number two, how do we move forward with that in mind and and bearing in mind that potential risk? I do think, you know, society is more than everybody uh, sitting in their own corner of the forest and you know, that's not a society. That's just 10 no. people sitting in their own private corners of the forest. If they come together and interact, that's that's a society. Having having said that, I can imagine that societies can also work virtually. You know, there's already a lot of people, young people around the world, I think, who are much happier with their virtual life in whatever online platform, game, mm-hmm. or whatever, where they are a, a level 10 wizard with a golden sword <laughs> than yes, their, yes. their real life where there are some <laughs> yeah. kids in, in the suburbs of Helsinki, you know, and, you know, if they have to choose, yeah, they have to have a real life, but where they're really happiest is in their virtual life. And they have friends there and they have people they interact with. It's just that it's all virtual. Is that a society? I think you might argue that it is. I have a wind-up question to follow that up that I am so excited to pick apart with you, Lambert. But let me just ask as we move here, you just mentioned you know, society shifting virtually. Already we see so much of this. I mean, you brought up the, the teenager in Helsinki, which could have been an example from 10 years ago, 15 years ago, playing some multiplayer online game. We've got you know kids now 
jumping into VR and, you know, who since the age of three have had an iPad in front of their face. I think that the the sanctity of the world of Adams is a little bit fuzzier with that crowd. And I know you've done some homework polling teenagers and, and thinking about sort of what they think of the future. And that's part of what made you feel like the right guy to talk to about these things. But there's a big shift in perspective from the youth for whom the virtual is in mesh with the physical, in many regards, more important. Do you think we need to kind of embrace the idea and maybe think through what is a virtual first society? Should, should we be swallowing that pill? Should people be pushing back against that? Are there productive ways to think about that? Yeah, no, that's it's it's interesting that you mentioned this this study that we did earlier this year with young people between ten and twenty years old, and you can read the results of that online if you go to a futurewithai.org. We have a website up there with all the the reports. But to to sum it up, there were a number of conclusions when we we spoke to youth. One is that they're thinking very internationally. So, which is something we're as the UN, we're quite happy to to hear that they feel really like like global global citizens. They also had a very high level of acceptance of new worlds, new forms of living, both acceptance of AI and and robots, and also acceptance of what what do we do all day and what what is the term work or, or job? What what does that mean? What should we be doing? And, and there was a lot of openness for them to imagine a world in which they coexist with AI and coexist robots and exploring like how how can we most successfully work with with AI and not not see it as some threat that we have to fight against or you know avoid being manipulated or whatever. It surprised me how open they were to that. Yeah, you know, I guess it it makes me think, I wonder how the automobile was sort of responded to initially, or, you know, the smartphone or what have you. It does seem self-evident. Like I hear all the time, Lambert, and, and I mean constantly, people saying like, oh, I would never use generative AI to write anything important, you know, or I would, I would never, I would never spend most of my time in VR. This is the same person who 20 years ago was having in-person meetings and today, Lambert, spends 12 hours a day minimum, including weekends, looking at screens. But mm-hmm. they will say, I would never. They would say, I would never, which is myopic and ridiculous. And I think the young people, obviously, they say science progresses by deaths. I think technology adoption rolls forward differently with people with a different set of norms. You know, you brought up a really important point about this. I think the youth is going to be driving the, you know, this next wave, these Gen Z folks, even millennials, I think, are are going to be moving forward these virtual boundaries. Question for you, you you brought the dangers of atomizing experience. I think there really is a concern, and I've I've heard it voiced a few times, that if we can go in and have whatever we want to experience be experienced, you know, you even brought up BCI, which is a totally different level. Is there a shot? that that makes our experience so atomized that it's actually very hard to be productive. You know, I, I could see people just saying, well, I want to be achieving, but if I can simulate being the best lawyer in the world and being Superman and having Mariah Carey from 1998 fall in love with me and have, and have, and have, why would I strive literally when I can sort of enter a world where I, I get what feels like challenge, but immediately feels like gargantuan amounts of fulfillment? What do we well, need to do to maybe combat that, or is that not a risk? 
before I answer that, let me put another level on that to make it even scarier. So you're you're mentioning two things. You're mentioning the drives and need for fulfillment that that humans have, and and that's basically what they want to to satisfy, right? And then on the other hand, there is uh, some needs in the world for for stuff to get get done, and for that we need to to collaborate and we need to work uh, do certain certain tasks. Maybe some of it can be taken over by robots, but I think humans have a, a big role in, in, in managing the world. And if you put an AI on top of that, and you just tell the AI, well, this is what needs to happen to keep the world going and to produce food for everybody and to produce, and this is what all these, these little humans want, what is the best way to motivate them to do something that is productive towards what the world needs? Not to make things even more scary, but no, 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 no. Uh, <laughs> ultimately, that is what we're trying to do when we we have international meetings to see how we keep international peace and how we deal with with food security and these things. And then we have in 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 various countries, you have a government. People get elected to be president or to be minister or or something, and people try to get stuff done. And they instruct other people to do this or that. And businesses see opportunities. I mean, if you just see all of that done automatically, it can be much more efficient. I so there 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 is there is no no idea too scary here, Lambert. I mean, at the at the very end of the day, at the very very end of the day, I think that the only game in town is the ascension of forms in terms of sentience and intelligence, vastly beyond hominids. I think it's it's literally the only game in town, and it, it sort of is a matter of pathways. I think what you're articulating sounds and smells to me very much like that. I don't know your full opinions there. We're going to get to them, but you're bringing up something great. And and so let's, let's unpack this because I really like where you're headed. This feels to me like a world, kind of this ideal human world that we might build where we could live in our bubble of totally customized, super rich experience, maybe live to be 500 years old. Who knows what kind of chemicals will be able to pump in eventually, you know, brain uploading, whatever. We could talk about all kinds of other things. What kind of comes to mind is that if Society A slips into that real soon, just says, hey, you know what? People want to chill out. People really want to chill. They, they want to live in their own experience bubble. Let's let them do it. Let's have the robots manage things. And society B says, hmm, we should really be as productive and technologically predominant as possible in terms of trade, in terms of military, etc. It does strike me that Will Durant was right that societies die Epicurean and are born Stoic. I wonder if unless we get to a global governance, anybody can get to chill out mode. But you you let me know your thoughts there. Yeah, I think with all this AI and automation, it's it's dangerous to have inequities. And and I think that is that's definitely a concern that we look at. You know, we're we we went ahead a little bit into the sort of speculative realm of of thinking, what about societies that are managed like DAOs? With with you know an AI on top, etc. But even just you know thinking about what people do with AI right now to make businesses more efficient, using AI in weapons, for instance, using AI for climate analysis and all of these things. And and some countries will obviously be much more effective at that than than other countries. You know, is that going to increase the gap of of inequality in the world? Or, you know, is it 
I'm actually quite, I've been quite pleased to see how open all this research in AI is. A lot of things are open source. Researchers share what they've discovered within like yeah. two weeks of, or two months of, of discovering it. So it's, it's, it's almost like a one big open source platform. So, you know, it's maybe that actually levels the playing field globally. I think it could. I mean, look, my, my suspicion it's funny. Every IGO is a little bit different, and and I, I get I get to have opinions. I'm not tied to anybody, right? And and I'm I'm pretty neutral party here, so I get to talk. Mm-hmm. It does seem self somewhat self evident that if we if we chill out to a certain extent, and and China does kind of the opposite, there could be some some effects there. I think there is some there is a grand wonderful future where we all go in. There's some overseer AI who will eventually digest us and do something much more important with that compute. Honestly, I would hope at some mm-hmm. point. I don't hope immediately. I'm not. I'm not wishing harm upon humanity. But but I don't know if running simulations of me playing Nintendo 64 games and being with Mariah Carey is really a good use of ultimate kind of deity level compute. But maybe there's some governing compute that manages everybody's individual happiness for hundreds of years or simulated millions of years. But it, it does feel like at least right now there is going to be trade and military predominance and other things. I'm not saying we should encourage conflict. I'm just saying there is a real consideration of when can we get to let's be happy and kind of have the machines just make sure the water is running and the electricity is working. It feels like there's a bit of an arms race dynamic, which I, I would hope could could kind of cool off. Is there anything that you think could encourage that? I do love the open sourceness of AI. You're touching on something that I think is wonderful. I love mm-hmm. the cosmopolitanness of young people. You brought that up too. What else do we need to make that not an arms race? Yeah, I think it's it's very hard because of the speed at which things are developing right now. Um, Trying to come up with ethical frameworks on how we're going to use something or trying to come up with regulation. Those are very slow processes. And with with AI at the moment, every three weeks, the possibilities have changed again. So it's almost impossible to come up with any governance on that. And in, in general, you, you mentioned the automobile before and, and grandparents and stuff. And, and if I think of my grandparents' generation, they in their lifetime, they had maybe four main technological shifts. You know, at some point, automobiles arrived and, and then there was telephone in the village. And, and first, only the doctor had a telephone, but nobody could call him because he was the only one with a telephone. <laughs> but anyway, then people got telephones. And then there was, I think, television at some point. But the point is that every time there was this this change, they had 10, 15 years to wrap their head around how do we deal with that in, in society? And and I think it takes a long time. You know, it is cell phones have existed for 30 years now or maybe 25 years. And yeah. we're still sort of haven't quite figured out the etiquette of is it okay to sit in a subway and talk for half an hour with your friend on the phone or is that not okay? Is it so and and things are going so rapidly now that we just don't have time to think about where we're going. And that's where I'm convinced that we're already in a stage where we're at the mercy of what is possible with technology. There's no time to stop and and make active choices because if the next thing is possible and somebody can make a billion dollars doing it, they're probably going to do it. I think that's a very important perspective. And I think, to be frank, I appreciate it because I think a lot of people would expect in your shoes, you would automatically put tremendous weight on governing bodies. 
but I, I, I think your frankness is refreshing. I tend to share your sentiment. I think if we're lucky, there's small amounts of nudging we can do. Otherwise, the great will of living stuff is going to do what it's always done and it's going to bubble into new things. And I, I'm not sure how quickly we can ride this thing with any any semblance of steering. Do you think long-term, kind of final thing, I know we've got a couple minutes here. Do you think long-term this is taking us, BCI and living in these programmatic worlds is already some kind of transhuman scenario, but do you see sort of AGI and kind of a, a going beyond of kind of posthumanist? You talked about an entity maybe managing international governance and, and energy, et cetera. Do you see this as potentially something sentient in the long term in terms of what's coming? Yeah, I think two questions here is, is AI going to be sentient and, and you know, take on uh, more and more of its own of its own thinking? And, you know, there's interesting science fiction movies, dystopian movies about that and, yeah. and whatever. And then the, the other part is how do we as humans keep improving things for ourselves, improving our own lives, our own bodies, our own physical health and our interaction with with computers and brain computer interfaces is is part of that of course and i think the the what what ai is doing for biomedical sciences at the moment is also very exciting and and important and it can can help people um, you know stay healthier live longer yep. without diseases etc and but that means we're also going to be dependent on AIs. It's not just that AI is used for some research and fix it. No, we're going to go to a, a stage where we have AIs, personalized AIs that monitor our health constantly, and we depend yeah. on them to stay healthy. So I think it's very going to be a very intimate connection between us and the AIs. And and I think that is a more interesting question than whether the AI will start to think for itself. If, if you have both yeah, that might might be a bit of a scary scenario, but yeah, it's 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 very difficult to predict. I think people people can expect that symbiosis. I would personally side very heavily with Kurzweil that you know of the biological and the digital intelligence, you'll see a, a great big merger of both of them, mm -hmm. and you're going to see a a relative fading of the bio stuff as time moves forward. But to your point, it'll be interesting to see what the symbiosis looks like, and hopefully for the folks that are listening in. This idea of BCI, this idea of a isolated society that, that can still maybe stay a society, and these bigger concerns about how we manage that at a global level, I think give people a lot to chew on. Lambert, I know that's all we have for time, but it was a real pleasure to unpack this with you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Great talking to you, Dan. So that's all for this first episode of our AI Futures series here in 2023 on the AI and Business Podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this one. We always like to pull in high-level perspective. It doesn't get much more high-level than the Chief of Data Analytics and Emerging Technologies at the United Nations itself. I'm very grateful for Lambert for being able to be with us here. In the show notes to this episode, I'll be linking to some of Lambert's own research and findings on what young people think about the future of AI. He's done some important work there, which you can check out. And I would encourage you to stay tuned every Thursday for the next four Thursdays, because we have some more great episodes coming your way, including one of the world's premier AI ethicists, who is also renowned in terms of technical prowess in artificial intelligence, and our next episode, where we interview the person who literally wrote the book on habit-forming digital products. 
And when I say the book, I mean the book that Silicon Valley refers to when it comes to how to make your product sticky. I'm not going to use the word addictive because it has some negative connotations, but how to make your product sticky? Well, we talk to that person themselves. We get some perspective on where generative AI might get more sticky, but also why that might not be a bad thing. So you're going to want to stick around for next Thursday as we go farther and farther into this topic. And again, I would encourage you as a reader here at Emerge, check out emerj.com slash reward. This is our long-form article, including a couple of infographics, about where this technology is taking us and some of our findings around the future of the human experience and things that we think are worth putting on the radar for business and policy leaders. Next Tuesday, we're going to be getting right back into our normal rigmarole of AI trends and use cases, as always. But next Thursday, we're going to be getting back into AI power. Again, this Thursday series is going to run for five Thursdays in a row, and we're grateful to have you here with us. So I look forward to catching you next week here on the AI in Business podcast.